0: Today's reading comes from First Corinthians six nine through twenty. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. even other every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual and moral person sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I tried to think of some really cute story to begin our time together, you know, like tiny hamsters eating tiny burritos or uh, chubby little triplets laughing at the same time and somehow making it fit, but the reality is there just isn't any smooth transition to how offensive these words can sound, right? (laughs) And I'm not even talking about what many of us might be thinking about. It's not the stuff on prostitutes and homosexuality, that's just the tip of the iceberg, But right here, Christians are called out. And we hear, you do not belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. You're not your own. And I mean, look, if there's anything I have control over, uh, it's not my job. It's not my hobbies. It's definitely not my dog, no matter how hard I try. Um, But it's this, right? My body, this is mine. I mean, what do we own if not our bodies? And this can get personal. Real quick, um, we can have conversations about health care, reproductive rights, uh, organic diet, um, legalized marijuana. And these conversations, they get heated in a hurry. Then you add sex into the mix. <laughs> and watch out because church is going to get real, okay? And <clears throat> if you're new here this morning, I feel for you. Uh, it's, it's hard enough to be new in a church uh, in general, Um, and then if this is your first experience, this text, this topic, this community, um, it's probably going to feel awkward, okay? But hopefully not too awkward. So let me say from the get-go, uh, this isn't our soapbox, um, we're not going to get up here and preach to all the sinners who are out there, but we're going to listen to Paul today as this text digs into the sinners who are in here, me too, and that may sound odd, um, The fact that we're talking about this, the fact that we actually want to hear about this is because we take this book, God's Word, seriously. If God is personal, if He has spoken, and He longs to be known, and He longs for us to know the way we are designed, then like every other conversation we've had with a person, there are going to be times He's going to say things we don't like. If we're just talking to ourselves, then we'll always agree, right? But if there is someone who is personal, who is God, there are going to be times he's going to say things we don't agree and things that we don't like. But since he loves us better than we love ourselves, he's always pursuing our good, then we should want to listen to him and we should take what he has to say seriously. Now, that probably raises some questions if you are here this morning and you're a skeptic or you have questions just generally. You know, but is, you may be asking, isn't the Bible a bit outdated, especially when it comes to sex, Gabe? Well, I think no matter who you are, we all have problems with our viewpoints on sex. We can look at this book and we can pick apart how it talks about sex, but I think we all need to come and ask, the, ask ourselves the question, have we put our own view of sex through that same test? Where do you get your philosophy of sexuality from? Is that a reliable source? And I think at the end of the day, we can all agree that we all have room to grow here, right? And that's also why we preach through the whole Bible, not just parts of it. We've been going through this letter, 1 Corinthians now, for a bit, and we're in Sermon 8 of 25. And we're preaching everything that's going on in this letter. Some of it warms our hearts, other parts kick our butts, and we're going to still talk about it. Um, So, for example, we spent five weeks on pride, and now we're going to spend three on sex because, shocker, Paul spends more time on pride than he does sex. And as we think about these next three weeks, we're going to jump both feet all into this conversation on God's design for sexuality. Now, this early church in Corinth, um, they totally missed the boat, and they were responding in extremes in terms of sexuality. Um, There was one camp. Uh, and one extreme who said that sex was so out of bounds that married couples shouldn't even have sex. You wouldn't find me in that camp. Now, the other extreme are those that said sex was just another appetite, just like eating food, and everybody's got to eat, right? Um, And and what's so fascinating is that even though this was written 2,000 years ago, we're going to find that the church in Corinth, their viewpoint on sex isn't all that different with how we're wrestling today, even if we call ourselves christians and paul's response here in first corinthians 6 and 7 is a timeless and a relevant guide into how god sees sex there are going to be times that paul's going to chafe against our modern sensibilities but please don't write them off here's the deal there are going to be things in this book that we're not going to like but i think we're also going to find that some of our some of our most cherished viewpoints on sexuality also come from this book And if you're going to be true to yourself, if you're going to be a person of integrity, you can't take one without the other. So in our first message, we're going to lay the groundwork for any kind of sexual um, sin and why a good and loving God places boundaries where he does. Next week, um, we're going to focus in on a specific sexual sin, not because it's any worse, but because it's one of the most hotly debated topics in our culture. Paul talks about homosexuality here, so we're going to talk about it. Next, the third week. Man, you guys are so excited, aren't you? (laughs) So uh, week three, we're going to take a turn at talking about the importance and the beauty of sex within marriage, the way God designed it to be. But here's the deal. I'm broken. You're broken. Our cultural perspective overall is just skewed when it comes to sex. And so we're going to pray for God's help because we desperately need it, right? Let's pray. God, you are the creative and the brilliant designer of sex. And we need your help. We're all sexually broken, and we come, I hope, in repentance and humility. May you forgive us for our mistakes and forgive us for our judgmental attitudes of others. God, we've really messed up in this area, and we know you won't give up on us, and so we ask, Lord, that you would empower us to feel your forgiveness and give us the strength to embrace your good design. Thank you. Thank you that you're the one who designed sex. This was your idea. So may you, by the power of the Spirit, guide us to live into the design that you've given us in our bodies for your glory and our good. Amen. Now, there's, there's one thing uh, that Paul wants us to remember, and not just this morning, but over the next three weeks, and that's you don't belong to yourself. When we, when we look at the, the wider and more robust experience of human nature, and we come to understand whose we really are, then we're going to see three things. We're more than our desires. We're more than just individuals. And then thirdly, we're more than what we see. We're more than our desires. We're more than just individuals. And we're more than what we see. So Paul, he starts off by challenging us by saying we're more than our desires. Now, every one of us at some point in our life We get that urge to merge, right? Um, And denying those desires can feel like we're starving ourselves. And this type of experience led uh, Sigmund Freud, um, the father of psychoanalysis, to see repressing any sexual desire as one of the most awful things you can do in your life. And this is the ideology that we in the Western culture swim in. Um, and this is also why, when Christians tout celibacy in any relationship outside of heterosexual marriage, we're laughed out of the room. It's led also folks like um, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, not because she's any worse, but I think she's a great example of holding on to this worldview from California. She says things like an abstinence until marriage program is not only irresponsible, it's really inhumane. How do we get there? Is that right? Is that the way it's always been? And I think this is an important uh, question because of the realities of our culture. And I want us to rest assured this morning that as sexually liberated modern people, with that viewpoint, we're actually in the vast minority of people in the rest of the history of the world. And for example, Dr. Elizabeth Abbott, she's a professor at Trinity College up in Toronto. In her book, A History of Celibacy, She writes, for at least 3,000 years in most parts of the world, celibacy has been far from uncommon and rarely considered unnatural. Interesting. So if your view of sex is that it is merely an appetite that should not be repressed, then you should know that most of the history of the world of people disagree with you. Now, that doesn't mean you're wrong, okay? That's not how we make arguments on why it's wrong. But what we should agree on at this point is that that particular worldview is not self-evident to a vast majority of the world, okay? Um, So we can start there. And in the first century, these Corinthian believers, they actually had a similar viewpoint of sex. If you go up to verses 9 and 10 that were read for us, you see that list of destructive desires that have come to define some of the Corinthian Christians. Last week, we focused on the destructive desires defined as greed, an over-desire for money, for possessions that makes your relationships toxic. Now, this week, we're focusing on sex, obviously. Now, look, when you get to verse 9, what's the very first one in the list? The sexually immoral. Now, this word... In the Greek, this is a Greek translation into English, okay? It was written in the first century in the lingua franca, Koine Greek, um, and it's translated it's the word porneia, which is where we get our word pornography. And this has a rich history of translation and a robust meaning that points all the way back to the very first book in the Bible, Genesis. In this meaning, we find it's the broadest term conveying any sexual activity, outside of heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Anything outside of that chafes against God's good design. And actually, Jesus takes it one step further. He uses this exact word porneia to describe lust, okay? So not just physical body to body, but the imagination of body to body. So he goes even further. And we may not like what Paul says here, We may not like what Jesus says there or what Genesis describes there, but one thing is clear, and we need to start here. The biblical storyline on the purpose of human sexuality is completely clear. One man, one woman, for a lifetime within heterosexual marriage. That is God's good design. And anything outside of that chafes against God's good design. And Paul, he wants the Corinthians to flourish. He wants us to flourish, not to languish in our sexuality. So with that said, let's jump into verse 12, where Paul begins to challenge the Corinthians. And you'll notice in your text that there are quotation marks, okay? It's, it's really interesting. It's like, where, where are these quotations coming from? And most of the best commentators highlight that Paul is probably quoting, because of the structure of the Greek text, he's probably quoting some common slogans that are a part of this Corinthian church. So they're saying things and they're touting these in their arrogance. All things are lawful for me. And Paul's like, okay, I'm going to take this slogan and let's really unpack this a little bit. And I think the NIV translation does a, a little bit of a better job just tackling what the Greek is communicating here. So I want us to look at that in verses 12 and 13. It'll be on the screen. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Paul, you told us we live in, in a time where we're under grace, right? And Paul responds, But I will not be mastered. I will not be dominated. I will not be enslaved by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Hey, Paul, you told us we no longer have to live underneath the kosher laws because of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Gentile and follow Christ. Well, guess what? We're going to get new bodies, and just like we're getting new stomachs, you gave us those other parts, and I've got needs, right? And it gets really explicit. And Paul's saying, Hey, wake up. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. What's actually happening is you're being mastered, you're being dominated, you're being enslaved by your sexual desires, and they're ruining you. And then later in verse 13, what does Paul say? The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Pornea, that wider, broad uh, understanding of sex outside of marriage, it's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. You haven't been freed from God and his good, good design. You've been freed for God and his good design. And just like the Corinthians here at the get-go, we can run from God and make sex everything and nothing simultaneously. We can make it everything. We revolve our lives around it. We find our identity in it. And simultaneously, we can make it nothing, saying, oh, that That escapade didn't mean anything. It's no big deal. And slowly we're enslaved by our desires. When they rise, we rise. When they fall, we fall. And it all becomes driven by how we feel in the moment. That's not freedom. That's an enslavement to desires that can control and destroy us. But here's the deal. I think if we're honest with each other and we pause for just a second, none of us actually believes that our sexual appetite is like all the rest of our appetites. I don't think any of us actually believe that to our core. And to prove that, just go to the music that you know, makes Casey Kasem's you know, Top List, which Ryan Seacrest, for whatever reason, is doing now. Come on, Ryan. Um, but if you look at the top songs, what do you find? How many of them are about food? How many of them are about sleep? But how many of them are about sex? Because it's so different than every other desire in our life. It's so much more powerful You know, former Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, he paints a picture of just how far we can miss it. And he says, imagine you go to a culture, you go to a community, and they spend their days staring at pictures of food. They revolve their lives around every next meal. They find their identity and what types of food they've been devouring that week. What would be your assessment of that community? Would they be satisfied or starving? We would look at that and say, there's something deeply wrong. They're starving. And in our sexual liberation, we've become enslaved. In our feasting, we're we're starving, trying to fill the bottomless pit of our heart. And right here, we begin to see the true problem. And it's much bigger than sex. It's much bigger than sex. When's the last time, I want to ask us this question, when's the last time you denied yourself anything? When's the last time you denied yourself anything? Think about it. In our culture, everything is a click of the mouse away. Everything. And we rarely need to deny ourselves anything. And so the battle is often lost before it even begins because when we realize we need to change, it feels hopeless to change. When we know we need to stop, we we feel like it's impossible to stop because we never stop anywhere in our lives. And so I, I I want to just guide us here... This is history of the church. This is the guiding of Scripture. I want you to do this, and it's real simple. It's very straightforward. Take me literally. Don't scratch the itch. Don't scratch the itch. You're more than your desires. And you don't have to scratch every itch. What do I mean? Literally, don't scratch the itch. That's what I do mean. But, and, and what you're going to do is learn the willpower to say no. Throughout the history of the church, One of the great gifts of discipline is fasting. Fasting. Now, there are various disorders and brokenness in terms of how we deal with food, but historically in the church, there was a discipline of fasting where you gave up one meal for a moment and spent it in prayer or community to remind yourself you weren't the sum total of your appetites. And if you could give up food, which we all know we need to survive, then if you could give up that, then surely you could give up almost anything that was destroying you. For me, that's one of the disciplines I engage in during the Lenten season. One day out of the week for lunch, I skip a meal and I spend time in prayer. It's not because I'm more holy. It's because I know how broken I am. And it's in that moment I remind myself I don't have to scratch the itch of lust for power I don't have to scratch the itch for the lust of possessions or people or even productivity, right? This incessant desire to define myself by my work. I stop and I pray. And for me, it just reminds me that no is possible. And for so many of us, that may be our starting point. We just need to remember that no is even possible in our framework of decisions. And so I want to ask you, Is that something possible for you during this Lenten season? Giving up a meal, spending time in prayer. It's very practical. We are are more than our desires. When's the last time you denied yourself anything? Don't scratch the itch. Now, let's say we all can agree, which we may not. We can all agree that we're more than our desires. But Gabe, you know, sex is private. And we have our cultural ethic that if two consenting adults you know, aren't harming anybody else, then what they do in the bedroom is their business, right? Fifty Shades of Grey, there it is. Um, But I don't even, here's the deal. The principle of consent is a huge debate in our culture, What is consent? How many drinks do you finally cross the line that it's no longer consent? How much of a power play between a man and a woman does there really have to be before it's actually consensual rather than manipulative? How much of an emotional state does he have to be in? Does she have to be in to make a clear consensual decision? It's way more complex than just saying, oh yeah, if they agree. No, no, no. Let's be real with who we are as people. It's much more complex. Well, let's just leave the principle of consent to the side as we debate as a community and as a culture. Paul challenges our presuppositions and goes so far as to say that we are more than just individuals. We are more than just individuals. And scripture doesn't stand alone here. Author um, and environmental activist, Wendell Berry, he writes this, sex is not, nor can it be, any individual's own business, nor is it merely the private concern of any people. Sex, like any other necessary, precious, and volatile power that is commonly held is everyone's business. Now, what does he mean? (laughs) That can be twisted, right? Well, here's the deal. Um, What we do in private impacts our public character. What you do in private impacts your public character. You bring it with you. And there were two sociologists who went about to explore this, and they They reported their findings in a book called Premarital Sex in America, published by Oxford University Press, which, FYI, isn't a bunch of Christians. Okay, And this is what they found out, um, that if you go about the practice of objectifying women on your computer screen or in your nightly activities in the bar, you're training your desires and the way you look at the world to objectify women in your workplace and in your home. You bring it with you. They don't have a dog in this fight. They're just highlighting how we're training our brains to interact with each other in community. And many of you women, you already know this, right? That's why we have this obsession over body image, this obsession of working out and the guilt that comes when we don't work out enough, the starving of yourselves. And actually, there was a recent article just yesterday in the New York Times called Great Another thing to hate about ourselves from Sports Illustrated, the latest body part for women to fix. This was in the New York Times, and I wanted to read this quote from you. It was, it was heartbreaking. Show me a body part, and I'll show you someone who's making money by telling women that, their looks wrong, that th- theirs looks wrong, and they need to fix it, tone it, work it out, tan it, bleach it, tattoo it, lipo it, remove all the hair, and lose every bit of jiggle, Right? And, this, and this, is, this is the unspoken cost of sexual liberation that many women are paying for every morning when they look at themselves in the mirror. And I'm so sorry. But it's even worse. It keeps going on in terms of societal impact here. This sort of exploitation of women has caused countless children to be aborted and abandoned. And it breeds a cycle of destruction, of a pseudo-prostitution, of vulnerable women. So pop quiz, who pays for the door of sexual freedom to be flung open? Women and children. Women and children. As a society, are we okay with that? Men, do you hear this? No, Gabe, but you don't understand we love each other. Does that sound like love? To us, you don't belong to yourself. We're more than just individuals. And actually, the authors of Premarital Sex in America, who remember aren't coming from a Judeo Christian background, highlight how selfish this thinking is. Because what we do in the privacy of our homes, in our bedrooms, on our computer screens, on our TVs, impacts our communities. There's no way around it because you bring it with you. But there's more. Look with me at verse 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So, okay, not everyone in here is knee-deep in pornography or chasing down prostitutes, right? But look, look where Paul takes us to anchor what sex is for. Like a good rabbi, he has a Jewish background, and he brings us where Jesus always brings us. He brings us to Genesis. And he quotes God as God speaks over the very first marriage bed. And he says, The two become one flesh. The two become one flesh. What's going on here is that if you're a Christian, somehow we are one with Christ. He is hid in you, and you are hid in him, and you have union with Christ. And one of the greatest pictures of that is when we have sex with someone, physiologically, we become one with them. But this also transcends our physiology as well. There's something more going on. It's something bigger than just you. It's something bigger than the person you happen to be spending the night with that night. But sex is a forging act that unites people. And when we engage in sex outside of marriage... It slowly rips at the core of our soul and our person. And it breaks us apart and it can make us numb to connection or cynical towards connection. And it's here, that's the dark side, the beautiful side of that as you begin to see God's design for sex within marriage. Is, yeah, okay, there's the pleasure and there's the passion. I am a guy, okay? I get that. But sex is, sex's real gift is more than that momentary high. Sex was designed to forge that bond of intimacy that keeps bringing those two people together for a lifetime. I love what Pastor Tim Keller writes in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. And and whether we believe that's true or not, don't we want that to be true? We want love that lasts longer than just a night. Going back to our songs, some of the most popular ones communicate this. You know, you've got Robin Thicke's Forever Love. You've got, you know, Whitney Houston's Iconic. I will always love you as she's sweating and singing these great high high, uh, high pitch songs. And the songs go on and on because at the end of the day, we know and we desperately long for a love that lasts. And as a society, we refuse to surrender the value that the Bible places on sex. We want romance, we want intimacy, we want purpose, but we get that from Scripture. Evolutionary biology strips sex of its romance. It's just a chemical response. You throw in a little hydrogen, a little bit of oxygen, poof, you get water. And then with sex, it's kind of the same sort of deal. You throw in the various chemicals and poof. It's just a chemical high. That's all it is. If sex is merely an appetite that we consume in private, it kills the intimacy and it exploits its purpose. But romantic love with all its magic, that only comes from Scripture. And we cry out desperately for the value that Scripture has for sex, and yet we refuse its ethic. And like a pyromaniac, we become enchanted with fire, but we forget that we can get burned. So let me ask us this morning, this is a real question. I have to ask myself this. You know, are, are you making sex all about you? Are you making sex all about you? And you, look, you don't have to call the escort service to make it all about you. This can happen in marriage. You can be single looking forward to marriage. You can be single and really just saying, you know what, whether I get married or not. When we engage in pornography or we go through one-night stands or we choose various partners to live with, it can destroy. It can destroy those relationships. Here's the deal. If sex is as powerful as the Bible says and as our culture sings then it's dangerous to use sex in any other way than it has been designed for. Yeah, okay, Gabe, I get it. God says sex, you know, sex outside of marriage is wrong. We're missing the boat. If that's all we've got is a frustration that God is holding us back, then we're missing it. The reason God says it's wrong is because he designed it to be one of the most powerful unifying mechanisms in marriage. And when we use it outside of marriage, it hurts us. It destroys us. And it hurts us in the deepest parts of our souls. For example, the more partners we engage, the more pornography we watch, the more people that we rotate living with, you begin to rob sex of its uniting power. It's kind of like taking a piece of duct tape, and you stick it to one chair and then another chair and then another chair and then the floor, and eventually that duct tape loses its stickiness. And sex loses its power to unite two people together. But Gabe, we're in a committed relationship. No, you're not. Just because you're living together doesn't mean you're committed. Commitment comes within the covenantal promises of marriage. Before that, it's just convenient. And that's hard. And and the reason we say this, even though it's really hard and in our culture, we have a lot of baggage, this is really God's good word of warning for us. Because as we think about cohabitation, it's actually... It continues to build this doubt that's always looming in the background. Another New York Times article, uh, a little older, it's called The Downside of Cohabitating, earlier in the 2000s here. And, and this may surprise you, but the New York Times isn't reported by a bunch of Christians either. Um, but, but here's what their studies have indicated. And actually, every study has indicated that couples who live together before they are married have a higher likelihood of getting a divorce. That's just scientifically unbiased. That is research, okay? Okay. New York Times publishes it you talk to most sociologists that's where it's going to guide you it doesn't mean every couple is going to get divorced if they live together but there's a higher likelihood of divorce for those who live together before they are married once again not christians making this claim so in other words the old well i got to test drive the car before i buy it method it just doesn't pan out not according to science you may not like scripture but not according to science I want you to listen to what one woman said in this interview by the New York Times about her situation of cohabitation. This is how she felt. I felt like I was on this multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife. Who wants to be there? That sounds awful, doesn't it? No matter your relationship status this morning, all of us are in grave danger of robbing sex of its uniting power. And we're at the height of trouble when we make sex all about us, all about me? You're more than just individuals. Are you making sex all about you? Don't be deceived. And this is lastly rooted in the fact that we are more than what we see. We're more than what we see. Christianity is one of the most body-positive religions in all the world. If I were to take some of these passages from Scripture and give you literal translations, I could make you blush. We go to Proverbs. I started unpacking what this dude's talking about. We scan some of the pages in the Song of Solomon that are in text. I mean, this stuff gets explicit. This is intense. And here's the deal. In Christianity, when God comes to the earth, he's born of a virgin and takes on a body. And when you get to verse 14, Paul says, Just like Jesus Christ was raised physically, so our bodies will be raised physically, and we have an eternal destiny as embodied beings. And that means what we do with our bodies today matters. It's not without significance that Jesus, as he comes before the apostles, he's recognizable. He sees the scars of suffering. And it's an amazing picture of what we have to look forward to. There are some similarities and differences. But what we do with our bodies now actually matters. And that's why Paul says, hey, wake up. In verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. When we look at verse 9 and 10, sexual sin in one sense is really normal. It fits nice and neat within the list of the rest of the sins, right? Um, These over-desires, these broken and destructive desires. But Paul also wants to say that it's not only normal with the rest of the sins, but it's also unique. And it has to do with the hidden reality of our bodies. We're not just a pile of atoms, We're not just temporary housing here. Paul says instead, this is the temple of the living God. And that changes the game. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And if you're a Christian, you've been bought. The creator of the universe has pursued you and he died for you to purchase you for himself that he might reside in your body to make sacred space of your physical reality. That's pretty powerful that the divine comes and resides in our bodies by the power of the Holy Spirit. That means everywhere you go, everything you see, everything you do, he's there. And that should make us pause and ask the question, are you running towards holiness? Are you running towards holiness? When sexual immorality rears its ugly head, we have kind of a natural response to either fight or fly, right? And Paul says, hey, look, yeah, I know you're more than your desires, but your desires are super intense, so hit the ground running. (laughs) Just start fleeing, but don't just run aimlessly away from sin. Run towards holiness. Run towards Jesus. Make him the center of his temple that is your body. Make him your greatest desire, your highest pleasure, your ultimate self expression. Make that him. And if God resides in us, that should change the paradigm of our decision making process, right? Instead of saying, How far can I go in this situation? What are the boundaries? You think I can get away with this? Does this really qualify as porn? You think I can read Fifty Shades of Grey? There's no pictures. Instead, we now ask the question, how can I glorify God in my body? What does it look like to make God glorious through my actions, my thoughts, and my intentions in this temple, his body? It's a different paradigm. If Jesus Christ is the Lord of our life and our Savior, that becomes the paradigm of our decision-making process. And that takes confession. It takes accountability within community groups and friendships, whether you're married or not. And it reminds me of an African proverb I heard, that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. It's not just a matter of fleeing from sin, but it's running with others and running towards holiness, being intentional about pursuing God's glory in our body. And look, I I don't belong to myself. I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when I think about this topic, man, I've got regrets. I've got failures in my life. I've got things I wish I could undo, relationships I wish I could heal. And whenever we get to this topic... We need to speak God's design. We need to highlight the destructive nature of sin. But we also need to know that all the shame, the guilt, the pain that we have hiding underneath the surface, God's grace grace is lavish enough to cover and forgive. We have to speak what God's design is so that we might flourish and we don't remain in our destructive cycles. And we need to highlight how destructive it is so we see it for what it is. But hear the grace of the gospel. Remember, this is who we were if you're in Jesus. Remember, verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were declared right, even amidst all the sexual baggage you've got going on in the background. And all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. You know what that means? There's no sexual sin that's too horrific, too taboo, too weird. No shame so great that Jesus hasn't already washed his blood over and forgiven you if you'll receive him as the sacrifice of your sins and humble yourself. Today, it can be brand new. Today can be the day of repentance and renewal. Today can be the day where everything is made new. It could be the day of a grand opening of a new temple of the one and true God. If you'll embrace him, he can heal every heartache. He can make whole what is broken. And even, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not until he returns and he finally makes us new, then he will transform every one of our desires to be in line with his good design. Eventually, maybe not today, but when he returns. You don't belong to yourself. If you don't belong to Jesus, then you belong to your desires, wherever they guide. And there have been too many times where our desires destroy us, yeah? We become enslaved in those. If you don't belong to Jesus, you don't belong to yourself because we're part of a community. If you don't belong to Jesus, there's a lot more going on underneath the surface than we even realize. So give yourself to Jesus because he's the one who gave everything that he might give us back everything. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Not easy words, but good words. Give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, break through our hard shells, our arrogance, that we know better than you, that we know better than science. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide us in wisdom and strength by the power of your Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.